Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. <laughs> well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. Are you sick of saying Happy New Year yet, Sherry? Uh, I, it's not something I do often. <laughs> you don't walk around I don't say people. it. I When I've had email correspondence, I've typed that in. Are you but sick I've of typing Happy New Year, Sherry? But I've only had a few that I typed that into my groups. So I kind of, there were two large group emails, so I kind of got it all out of the way. I feel like we went from... <laughs> The kind of celebratory, here we are, let's ease back into 7,000 miles an hour again. Like, just whiplash. Back at it. Yeah. So I don't feel like, I don't feel festive or holiday at all. Mm. Like, the holidays were six years ago, it feels like to me. <laughs> well, and... It's very curmudgeonly of me to open that way, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> but as I look out of our, like, window-clad office that we're recording this in... I can see why you're like that. We in we in Colorado have a lot of sun typically, and normally we get snow, and then the sun comes out, and it gets to forty, and it melts, and it's gone. We've had some sticking around kind of weather and gloomy, so that's kind of made me curmudgeonly. Well, yeah, I'm not. I did say curmudgeonly, I guess, but I'm not. I'm not grumpy. It's just I think our listeners will probably be able to relate to. Uh, yeah, all that holiday stuff, ho, 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 and all that, that's long gone. It's yeah. back to the work stress and kids stress and school stress and whatever. Just normal times. Normal times. Back at it. Well, um, I'm glad to be back at it with you, Sherry. There's a positive positive spin on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, love doing this podcast with you. Let's do a listener question. Okay. And let's, before we do the listener question, let's encourage other listeners, hey, send in some questions. I think that tapered off a little during the holidays. People were busy with, you know, other things, their families, (laughs) Uh, too busy with that to contact us. But yeah, send us an email at matt at soberandunashamed.com and let us know what you would like us to address. address. Just a reminder, we're not therapists. We're not going to give you therapeutic advice, but we will tell you what our experience is with whatever situation it is you're facing or question you might have. We love getting your questions. This question is, what was your biggest mistake and regret in your recovery? Hmm. Do you want to take a stab at that or do you want me to go first or what do you think? Um, I think the biggest mistake was not understanding I needed my own recovery. Ooh, yes. I mean, I had talked about going to therapy years before you even were considering sobriety. Um, and I knew cause I had my own stuff that I needed to work out. Um, but then thinking, well, he's quitting drinking and his behavior is going to change and then everything's going to get better. That misnomer. Yeah, that's a good one. For me, there are two answers of this, of course. The listener asks, what is your biggest mistake? That's a singular answer, but I can't do that. I do everything in... Long-time listeners will know I do everything in quantities of two because I can't remember more than two things at a time. Apparently, I can't do it in one. But these are kind of tied for me. Uh, We didn't understand the timing. Mm. We, 
you know, I definitely thought, I, and we've said this a million times, I'm sober now, Sherry. What more do you want from me? It's done. It's over. I didn't understand that recovery was a lifelong business and especially relationship recovery. And then the, the second part of that is I didn't know that we had both changed, both, both been changed by my alcoholism and I didn't you know, just accept you as you are originally. It took me a long time to to get over the fact that you were a different person and I was a different person now in recovery than we'd ever been before. We hmm. just got to move forward. You're kind of smirk, smirk grinning. Is this because it's one of the many things that you figured out before me? No, we... I'm just wondering if you ever really even liked me to begin with. and Because you were always kind of trying to change me. What a lead into our topic today, and you don't even know what our topic is. I don't. Is. I actually, I've been so busy, I was like, I don't even care what it is. I'm just going in blind. Yeah. Um, I I don't feel like I was always trying to change you, but when I look back, there are lots, there's lots of evidence to the contrary. Yeah, like if I gave an opinion and it was different than yours, there would be, and this wouldn't be arguments, it would just be manipulation tactics, it would be trying to convince me that you were right and here's your argument for you know it was like we were on a debate team and you were trying to win yeah what an asshole so yeah that's what my family thought too <laughs> i took a drink of coffee right when you said that <laughs> yeah well so sorry i want to relate this to something that hopefully so that's our answer to the question. Again, if you want to send in your own question, please do. Um, you don't need to send in the question, what did Sherry's family think of Matt before, when he was an alcoholic? Because not very or much. early on before you were even. But if you do want to send in a question, please do. Matt at SoberAndUnashamed.com. Link to that in the show notes as well. Politics, Sherry. I want to talk about politics. Because that seems no. like a good way to hold no. on to listeners. No. no, I want to talk about it generically. Okay. We in this country, in the United States, we change the party that's in control about every eight years. Sometimes it's more frequent than that. But if you if you really go back through history, yeah. it's about every eight years we swing between the Republicans and the Democrats in leadership positions. It's an eight-year cycle. And, I mean, just kind of from the perspective of someone who enjoys history kind of understanding why that is, I believe, and, and what I've read and heard, the reason that is is because people are just not happy with their lot in life. They're not happy with how things are going. They're not happy with, you know, we talk a lot about the economy. The economy is a very individual thing. What's going on as it relates to the stock market or, you know, um, the uh, unemployment rate, all of that. You know, those are just numbers. For people, it's what's happening in their own family uh, that they that makes them uh, unhappy or happy. And people are generally unhappy with how things are going, and they're looking for someone to blame. That's the point I'm trying to make. They're looking for someone to blame, and so they blame the people that are in charge, and they vote in the people that aren't in charge. And then eight years seems to be the magic number of an amount of time that you forget that those other people couldn't fix it either, so we're going to vote them back in. And see yeah. if they can fix it this time. Yeah. Well, the grass is always greener on the, the other side, The grass is always Matt, greener. You know. But... There's got to be someone that's going to fix everybody's problems. But it's 
you know, and you know, one of my all-time favorite movies, top five ever, is American President with Michael Douglas. I love that. And, and Annette Bening. And Annette Bening. And he gives this this speech and he talks about how politics is all about telling you what's wrong with your life and telling you who's to blame for it. And so the the word blame really sticks in my head when I think about politics. Mm-hmm. Nothing gets fixed. We just switch people that are in charge every eight years and the hot potato gets tossed back and forth. And it's not even necessarily in their best interest to fix things. Um, But that's, you know, God, we could go way off the rails with that. So let's not. Um, But it just goes back and forth every eight years because people aren't happy with their lot in life and they're looking for someone to blame. Yeah. Let's relate that to blame in alcoholic relationships. We talk a lot about how important it is to blame the addiction or blame the alcohol and not blame the alcoholic because there's so much shame that's involved with laying all the blame for the turmoil and chaos in an alcoholic relationship at the feet of the person who's the drinker. That shame could certainly cause relapse. It makes relationship recovery um, exponentially more difficult. So this concept of blame the alcohol, blame the addiction, don't blame the person is really powerful. And it's something we've been talking about for a long time. Uh, when Anna and Mitchell were on the podcast, I don't know, two years ago now, um, from We Are Recovery, that's their Facebook page, another great resource for listeners, they were the ones that kind of introduced to us the concept of pretend like there's a third person in the relationship. There's the husband, there's the wife, and then there's the alcoholic. And the alcoholic is is this third entity. Mm-hmm. And it makes it easier to not only blame that thing, that entity, but also to know who to be mad at, as opposed to being mad at your your spouse who is in recovery and trying. Yeah, and that I feel like that was a hard concept for me to try to grab hold of for a while, and I can totally see other people ha- struggling with this. When we did talk with Anna and Mitchell, like, I'm a visionary, you know, I'm not a visionary, I'm a visual person. Yes. So I imagine that there was, like, this looming, like, kind of dark figure lurking in between their shoulders, like, in a family portrait. And that's kind of how, that made me be able to say, there's the alcohol, that's the alcoholic. Because there are so many times where I'd be like... Matt, you're choosing to open that other beer. You're choosing to go to the liquor store because you can't get through this weekend without drinking. You're choosing all these things. But when I look at it, like, from having that looming, like, ominous figure um, behind us, I'm like, no, it was the alcohol driving you the whole time. Whether you had been sober for six months or nine months, you still didn't have it cleaned out and you weren't of your system and you weren't in like recovery. You were doing some reading the last time that you um, tried to buy sobriety before this permanent sobriety. So you were aware of what was going on a little bit. You just hadn't quite hit that spot where you just needed to keep working through it and you needed to find different resources because yeah. you didn't do any anything other than bibliotherapy and writing for your recovery yeah, I mean and then I think that's a little bit of a shot the way you said that sorry no I, I just like I you mean, didn't have community that's what I hear from people in the rooms of AAs oh you just read you know that's it well we'll save a seat for you when you relapse yeah. I mean I think 
the bibliotherapy, all of the memoirs that I wrote, that was my community to start with. Right. And eventually that was not enough. And now we have lots of community around us. Yeah, and you found but different books. But for a while, that, that worked. That worked. Yeah, and, and you found different books that talked more about brain chemistry and then opened up to learning about nutrition. Um, you know, so it just, you added more tools to your toolkit. Yes. Whereas you didn't have much of a community. It was a smaller community, even if it was in books. That's great. And then you added the writing piece, I think. Um, the this last time, I don't ever really remember you doing any journaling or writing in those two six months then or nine months. Then. I did a little. I found I always typed it, so I have found old files that I've gone back and read, mm-hmm. and it kind of cracks me up how little I I knew back then. Mm-hmm. But but yeah, the the concept of blame and blaming the alcohol and the addiction as opposed to blaming the alcoholic is so important but but the it goes deeper than just looking for someone to blame once the addiction is in place once you're dealing with all the aftermath of alcoholism um blame is not just something that you kind of wrestle with as the result of the drinking blame i think is also an underlying cause of the both the addiction and the relationship dysfunction and it goes back to what you said a minute ago you said or a few minutes ago you said when we first met you're not sure if I ever really liked you because I was constantly trying to change you that's a really important point and you and I have kind of peeled back the onion to that same spot but we came at it in different ways so I think that's fascinating that you said that unprovoked like you had no idea I was going to bring this up but when I say blame is an underlying cause of the addiction and the relationship dysfunction, you know, we we were critical of things about each other. You could certainly make the argument that I was more critical of you than you were of me. Um, I want to talk about that. I don't I don't know. Maybe you're right. But we were looking for ways to change things about each other. I was certainly looking for ways to... And that's not to say I didn't love you. I loved you very much. I was very attracted to you. I loved your personality. I loved your spunk and, and uh, you know, how you didn't take shit from anybody. Like, that was so cool to me. <coughs> Pardon me. But, um, but yeah, you know, okay, so let's, let's just dive in. We've, we've joked about on this podcast before that I gave you a Franklin planner for your birthday <laughs> or for Christmas or something. Well, I think. I, sorry, go ahead. I was gonna say. I, I mean, looking back, I think some of it was just the way that you were brought up. You thought if we didn't agree on things, then we weren't partners. Uh, there was some of that. Yeah, there was some of that. And I'm sure that my systems didn't make sense to you. My disorganization, my memory skills, they didn't make well, sense wait, to you. But let's stay with that first thing. I grew up in a very traditional patriarchal family. Yeah. My father is a very, very, very strong patriarch. My sister and I were just talking about this last <laughs> week. I don't know that the, the, you know, mantle will ever be handed down. <laughs> like he will, like I remember when, like, when my grandfather kind of, it kind of stepped aside and my father was kind of the family leader as my grandfather aged. Yeah. 
That's never going to happen no. with my father. I imagine he's in his casket. It's his skeleton, and he's holding on to like the sign that says, I'm the patriarch, and yeah. you're trying to grab it out of his hands. There's a scene in, in Young Frankenstein. If anybody hasn't seen it, it's hilarious. <laughs> but that's how I imagine when you said that. Yeah, so what I grew up with was <coughs> very traditional, you know, very leave it to beaver. Um, so he was definitely large and in charge. And so when you talk about that, I grew up with this sense that you and I, Sherry and Matt, needed to have our opinions aligned on a lot of things. It was because my parents' opinions aligned on a lot of things. And I'm not sure, this sounds horrible, I'm not sure that it was so much because their opinions aligned or so much because the dominant opinion just overrode any other opinions yes. that were in the room. I think that happened because I do have relationship with your mother and always have and off to the side when it would just be the girls doing things. I was given insight, you know, that the traditional marriage they had because they're also, you know, the generation above us. So those were just things that you just, you did what your husband wanted to do. You followed his career you had the kids, you know, those sort of things. Yeah. Um, so, I I mean, I remember your mom saying, gosh, I wish that we had had the nerve to just move in together and live together when your father got his first job out of college. But they quickly got married, so it would be okay for them to move to another state together. Hmm. Whereas you and I lived together. Yeah. And she was like, I would have rather had, like, planned and had more time and then had a wedding and gone back to our home town and gotten married a few months, you know, six months, whatever. That's so funny. Nowadays, it, I think it's almost expected that you would live with someone before you would marry them. I mean, I certainly expect all four of our kids to live with somebody before they marry them. Well, my grandmother, my mom's mom even said, oh, I think it's a great thing that yeah, you're doing that. I think, because, you know, look at your mom's track history. That wasn't to be mean, but my mom had been divorced twice. So, yeah. Well, now it's, at least for me, it's expected I do, and I haven't thought about this in a long time, but I do remember feeling a little bit of stress about that when we did it. Mm -hmm. And then there you go, one generation above, it wasn't even a consideration. Yeah. So we've come a long way. Baby. Baby. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I mean, one of the things that I still think is a good idea, at least uh, from a practical sense, it might not be a good idea relationship-wise, but somebody along the line said to me, that he and his wife sat down when they voted and they agree they they uh, debated and then compromised and came to agreement on everything they were going to vote on because otherwise if they were voting one way and then the spouse was voting the other way they were just countering out each other's vote and why should either of them vote to begin with and I was like that makes a lot of sense so you and I have since we have gotten together sat down with our ballots we live in a state with mail-in ballots, and so we get a chance to um, to do that at home. And we sit down, and we go through everything, and we, we do compromise. I mean, mm -hmm. I don't know. Maybe it didn't used to be compromise. Maybe I was just I used to be an asshole, and we did everything my way. But That's true. Very much so. This last time around, I remember there were things that we we did what you wanted, even <laughs> if I didn't necessarily agree with it. And we did, you know, you agreed with some stuff that I wanted, even if you didn't agree with it. So it was very much a compromise. Yeah, and in the past, I don't think I had the confidence to um, say my opinion, so I did re just vote your way if, you know, it looked like I was going to be challenged. Yeah. Because I also didn't want it to turn into a huge fight. Yeah. 
you know, I know they say every vote counts, but then I'm like, you know, really, in yeah. a lot of ways. Does it count enough to be Does worth it? Does it count enough fight? to make my home upset for several days? Yeah. Is it worth it? Yeah. Yeah, so I think that's fair. I did kind of come into this relationship with this idea that we needed to be on the same page in many more ways than you did. Yeah. I didn't, I mean, I want to defend myself in this. I did not come in thinking I need to rule with an iron fist and she's going to follow whatever I say, but I have strong opinions and I'm sure that as much as I wanted us to be on the same page, and this isn't just about politics, obviously, this is about kids and money and career and all that and where we're going to live. And I, I did, you know, want it to be a 50-50, let's talk about this and come to an agreement, but I'm also... I'm kind of a lot sometimes, and uh, I'm sure that that was difficult. Yeah, and, and I'm not saying it was a negative way. I just didn't think that you thought that it was okay. I mean, yes, let me just back up. We did have, really tried to have a united front with the kids. Yeah. When they were younger, like babies, I could be like, you don't know anything. What the, you're not, in, you know... Like, I would say that under my breath, thinking, oh, well, he, he has a gas bubble or whatever, you know. But then, then you came around and you learned about, like, being more open to my opinions. Well, let's talk about how we went into parenting. You read a lot. Yeah. And I was like, oh, we'll follow our instincts. We're smart people. Well, and I followed my instincts as well, and I took what but I... But, like, that's all I wanted to do. Yeah. Like, we went to Lama's class because I felt like it was, like, mandatory, but... Otherwise, I didn't crack a book. Yeah. And you read many. But um, we, we did have a united front on a lot of things. And we would, and I do feel like with the kids, sometimes I would debate behind closed doors with you about the choices that we made or before we went in to discuss something, an issue with the kids or how to handle a situation. Um, but I think that it was just small things like... A, Opinions about music, like if we were hosting, you're like, well, I'm going to put in this band because everybody likes them. And I'm like, not everybody likes them. Let's play a variety or whatever, you know. Yeah. But you, you kind of have these opinions. But I feel like, for me, I felt like maybe this was your insecurity with drinking because you felt like if I didn't agree with you, then we were on the opposite team. Yeah. And the opposite side. And because that's what you saw you know, probably from your parents, you didn't know the closed door. But then, you know, I had a mom who was a single mom, more independent, did have disagreements with the way that she should be doing things, raising us with her family or with my father or his parents. So, you know, even my aunt, who was very close to us and lived close by, not that they were negative, but she was just like, I'm going to do it this way. Yeah. You know, and she... Felt comfortable because she didn't have to answer or agree or compromise with the partner most of my upbringing. Yeah. So I could see her having her own opinion and doing things her own way. But I don't know how that ties in, but I have the same relationship with my mom if I used to. If I didn't agree with her, she felt like I was against her. So I felt like I was getting it from both important relationships in my life. This is really this to me this is really interesting. Not that last part about your mom. I don't even I don't know where to go with that, but but I, yeah, it was always important to me that you and I were on the same page, but I it never tied it together with where that came from. I never tied it together until this conversation with the fact that that came 
from the way I was raised and what I saw, the modeling that I saw from my parents. Even though I knew, you know, that my father was large and in charge and was basically making all the decisions, I didn't want that. I did not want that. I vehemently did not want that, but I did want us on the same page. And now there are lots of areas where we disagree, and I'm totally fine with that. And that shift, I don't know I don't know how or when that happened. Obviously it happened in sobriety, but it's just this very moment that I'm realizing um that where that came from in me and how important that shift is. So so back to things that I was critical of and wanted to change about you, which originally I wrote these notes, it was Things we were critical about each other and wanted to change about each other. Well, but I was now, critical of you. I'm now kind of ways. thinking maybe this was mostly me. But yeah, you're, you're different organization style. Um, now I embrace it. I embrace the fact that you like to keep stuff out and in the line of sight so that you can know that it's something you're working on. But for the early part of our marriage, it just looked like clutter and disorganization and chaos. And I thought you were a mess organizationally. And I tried to change that in you. Right? Yes. Fair? Uh, we've talked a little bit about the different parenting styles. The thing that specifically comes to mind that I would try to change in you, you have always given our kids choices. And when you give your kids choices, that's a harder route to go in that Sometimes they waver on their choices or sometimes they don't make the best choice and you have always had to manage that. I have now come to realize what a blessing that is for our kids that you have given them choices. I but at the time, you know, when they were younger, I would say, "Why are you letting him decide whether or not, you know, he has peas on his plate? Put the damn peas on his plate and tell him to eat them. You're the parent. That's your job." Again, wow. This is like a therapy session for me today. That's all from my childhood. I didn't get choices. I was told what to do and I did it. And so I thought that was the way to go. And I was very critical of you. You you would come to me and say, Matt, I'm struggling because, um, you know, I had a bad interaction with one of our kids. And I was a terrible listener. I wouldn't say, oh, you had a bad interaction with one of the kids. Tell me about it. Um, how can I support you? I would say, well, I see why you had the bad interaction. You let them be a human being with their own individuality. What the hell's wrong with you? <laughs> Whip them into shape. Tell them what to do. And uh, don't ever let them forget that you're the parent. Oh, God, I sound awful. Um, but so that was something that I, I tried to change in you. That must have hurt. Yeah. Or at least been frustrating? It was frustrating. Because um, when I would try to explain to you that down the road they're going to have to learn to make choices and have their own opinions and you just didn't want to hear anything like that. So I know it seemed trivial at the time, whether it was a grilled cheese or peanut butter and jelly, but it gave them their own identity. They get to have some say in their life. They're little kids. They don't have, you know, a whole lot of of opportunities to have choices, but you just felt like that was ridiculous. I had a friend when I was growing up that he was a good enough friend that I ate over at his house for dinner on a fairly regular basis. And he had two brothers and his mom would cook whatever meal 
And the two brothers and I and the parents would eat that meal and he would eat a PB&J. And I always thought that was so disrespectful. And I always thought those parents should just make him eat the stupid dinner. And so some of, you know, my logic wasn't all just from, you know, being limited in my choices as a child. Some of it was I witnessed some stuff that was crap. Yeah. Like that kid's got no palate. Now as an adult, probably still eats PB and J's every night for dinner. Like, yeah, I mean, come on. I would, I would have the kids if they didn't like something. You know, I oh, would go that did. far. But yeah, but that, that but was like the thing that was time. seared into my head, and then I was like, "Don't give them choices." Yeah, look what can happen: anarchy. <laughs> kids probably killed three people and in jail for the rest of prison for the with rest a, of his with life. With a butter knife with peanut butter on it, <laughs> he killed people. Somebody didn't cut off his crust. And I didn't go that far. It wasn't allowed. But it would only be, yeah, it would be. And that's why I was like, it's only like lunchtime or breakfast. You know, it's not like they get to make choices for dinner because I wanted them to have a palate. Yeah, and my brain went. But you, you were black and white. Yes, yes. You were very black and white when there was. What do you mean it's only lunch and breakfast? Or breakfast. It wasn't even both. Oh, how how is that even possible? I know. It's all got to be the same. Uniformity. Yeah. Toe the line. But there was this level of black and white that only you saw. Good, bad, black, white, yes, no. 100%. When you're drinking I still days. struggle with that. Yeah. And, and I'm sure that that's a part of you, just of who you are. But you're more accepting of the gray, muddled, messy indecisiveness now. So do you feel like you... I know you pushed back as it relates to how you interacted with the kids. But do you feel like you tried to change me? Were you critical of me and said, Matt, you're too black and white. Let um, them make choices. I, I would try to say those things, like, let them make choices. Most of the time it was disregarded. Um, also, I wasn't very good at approaching you. I wasn't this level-headed, calm voice, so I would let it get pushed down and then I would explode. So I don't think that I came across looking like I had much leg to stand on. Yeah. Because I was irrational. Yeah. And you would often turn that against me. You know, of me being irrational and having a temper and just, um, I, I think that I didn't, I was critical of you about your choices, maybe not so much to your face. Um, but then I would say words that would really cut, I think, you know, like drinking again and just being derogatory about some of the things. Yeah. So I was critical and withholding at the same time yeah well i think was you know, it... so one of my things on the on my list here is money and i want to ask you you know i would criticize like, one of the things that we we continue to talk about you'll bring something home and be like it was on sale and i'd be like yeah like you only bought it because it was on sale but you could have saved the money you spent even though it was on sale if you didn't buy it because we don't need it so i don't understand the logic of it was on sale, so I was, I was often critical of your of your money spending decisions. Fair enough. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's pretty common in most relationships. If you look at, you know, what popular magazines list as the most contentious issues in relationships, most common reasons for divorce, money is always you yeah. know, in the top three. Yeah. So I don't think we need to waste a bunch of time on money. So we argued about money, but. I've got to imagine, you know, I'm critical of you because you bought something for 
two fifty because it was on sale, and I'm like, that's yeah, it's on sale, but that's two fifty. We could have saved if you didn't buy it at all. We didn't need it. But oh, by the way, can you help me carry this keg down to the basement <laughs> to get it into the kegerator? Um, I just spent I don't remember what they were one hundred and fifty dollars on this. Yeah, keg you of beer. got a friend discount. Too. I got a great discount, but still. Yeah. I mean. What was that like for you, for me to be critical to you about money and then you would see how much booze I would go through? That was really hard. So that was a a resentment and an underlying issue that I would push down, push down, and then explode on um, probably later on. Uh, Did you have anything comparable? I don't remember. Like You didn't have a coffee addiction where you drank expensive coffees and I could be like, ha, ha, ha. No, there was one summer where just the downturn of the economy in our business was, it was just everything was bad. Yeah. Everything was bad. And you were like, okay, I'm going to stop drinking this expensive beer (laughs) and I'm going to do this other beer. What can you cut? And I was like, well, I can't cut anything. I mean, I can try to really trim up the groceries and the good thing was I was pregnant with our youngest and I was sick that summer so really like mashed potatoes and white bread sounded great for me um and thankfully we had a bakery that when had the, sandwiches wait, 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 wait. when the combination of sickness and pregnancy hits it's mashed potatoes and what did you say white bread white bread like That's all you or want. saltine crackers like okay. so Never you know because I was before. sick from even like cooking but I just remember you talking about we were going through the list of things we had, and you were like, well, you can cut your YMCA family membership, and that's 80 <laughs> bucks a month, I think. And I was like, they can't get free childcare there. I can go work out. They have a pool. Like, that's our only fucking entertainment either. <laughs> no. And you were so, like, ornery about it. And you're like, fine, I'll just drink PBR. Because you were going to do something cheaper like Coors Light or Coors or something. And then you're like, fine, I'll just drink PBR. And then then we found out how much of a disaster that was. Because you were drinking five times the amount to get the same amount of buzz that you were from the IPAs. And the recycling bin was completely filled by the two weeks that we needed to turn it in. But I just remember thinking, how is this even comparable? Like, I'm doing something good for me and the kids. And you want me to cut that. You can't even just cut out drinking for the summer. Or just drinking on the weekend, you know, something like that. That's a great, that's a great story that to illustrate this, you know, constantly we were critical of each other. I loved you. I still love you more than anything else in the world that never wavered, but I was still constantly critical of you. You know, here's what you need to change. Here's how we're going to make this work. Part of it, one of the things that we've talked a lot about is the chaotic mind syndrome that is very common in high-functioning alcoholics. My brain just doesn't shut off, and I would use alcohol to shut it off. And, you know, when you're in that situation, you're constantly thinking of what's the next thing? What can we do here? What can we change there? And it's impossible not to have your spouse roll into those thoughts of of change and then you spend you tend to spend time thinking of things that your spouse could change too uh the criticism was just kind of ever present i think there was i think some of it went both ways sex is another thing on my list uh we did not align necessarily as it relates to uh, frequency of sex i think that's very 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 common in relationships yeah, so we were never aligned necessarily with how often 
we wanted to have sex and I was constantly trying to change you and I think you were constantly trying to change me as it relates to that and whether you change whether you were trying to change me outwardly like Matt you want to have sex too much you are a pig we should have sex less or you were just you know there was a lot of rejection yeah and and making me feel bad and so we were critical of each other as it relates to sex and not not the act of sex but the frequency of sex well and I think that was one of my ways that I withheld my affection because that was me being critical of you because I didn't feel affectionate and so yeah. I was withholding understand um, and then I would you know complain a lot during like oh it's just not the right time or it's this or it's that or make excuses or you had those 47 or, PBRs <laughs> and you I'm stayed, not interested you know yeah like you know and I think that because we've discussed that our sex life was kind of a little messed up in the from the beginning like for me to say this doesn't you know this is this would feel better you'd be like no you don't know what you're talking about you know and and you were most of the time you know inebriated so you weren't really concerned about my pleasure so that made it like even more like drudgery and then that just gave me more reason to be resentful yeah yeah so so here we've just gone through a, a number of topics where we were critical of each other. I, I will accept, I will even offer the that the criticism was not an even split. I was more critical of you than you were of me. But it did go both ways. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that I think is partially stuff that we've learned in recovery but it's also partially stuff that we've just learned because we're older now right and we've experienced life for longer criticism almost never leads to change i mean you just can't change people anyway if there's any group of people that should understand that it should be people that are in alcoholic relationships that are trying for recovery because i mean I, I can think of hundreds and hundreds of cases that we know the intimate details of where a spouse of an alcoholic is trying to help the alcoholic get sober and they're begging and pleading and insisting and ultimatums and yelling and screaming. None of it ever works. In all the cases I can think of, it's never worked to yell at an alcoholic that he needs to get sober. So being critical and trying to change people it just doesn't work. And I think that's well established at this point. The only the only kind of way to navigate a relationship successfully, I, I believe, from our experience and what we've seen, is to celebrate the differences in each other and compromise. And, you know, this isn't... So we're, we're venturing beyond just alcoholic relationships were this is just i think solid relationship advice period because again i want to tie this all together when we're talking about blame in relationships i want to go beyond just hey don't blame the alcoholic blame the alcohol and blame the addiction and talk about how uh the blame is not just the you know, happens on the back end once the addiction is already solidified. The blame is an underlying cause for the alcoholism to begin 
with, when we are critical of each other, when we're blaming, you're not parenting right, Sherry. Oh, uh, you say to me, I want to have sex too much. Um, when we're back and forth with each other that way, in a critical nature, blaming, it's leading to this dissatisfaction that's going to lead to something. And in our case, and in many cases, it led me, uh, that's a, one of the underlying causes to me deciding to medicate with alcohol. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was already drinking, right? Right. And I noticed that when I would drink, it would make me not give a shit that you were being critical of me. So I would just drink some more. And pretty soon it's a slippery slope and you're across the line. So so I just think um, it's so important to look at the role of the criticism in relationships and trying to change each other and to just try to eliminate that. Does that all make sense? Yeah, I think it does. I think that even if there isn't that outward criticism in a relationship, the withholding happens. Yeah. You understand that you're dissatisfied in the relationship because you're feeling underappreciated or not respected. And it goes both ways. So there are people that are not alcoholics that are in relationships with maybe an alcoholic that, like, you know, someone in my shoes could take on my own sort of, you know, um, medication, outward medication. I mean, it could be even as healthy as over-exercising or avoidance or shopping or... Or rearranging and cleaning the house. That's one we hear a lot about. Yeah. Or painting So there's, there's something, there's there's got to be an outlet for it, but that there's that avoidance. So the the... The troubles continue in recovery in alcoholic relationships. We experienced it, and we see it all the time. And, and this definitely, I think, goes both ways. The, critic, the criticism and the wishing that it was different. So let me give you some examples. Um, you know, for when I was in active addiction, it was clear to you and not clear to me that I was prioritizing alcohol over you. Mm-hmm. If we would go to a restaurant, it had to be, it couldn't be a, you know, fast food place. It had to be a restaurant that had a liquor license because I wanted to have a beer with my lunch. Even if we were with our small children, like that was a priority. And you saw that and you felt me prioritizing alcohol over you. But that continued in sobriety. I mean, I've got to read, Sherry. I've got to learn. I've got to educate myself. I've got to get over this hump. I, I've got to go a million miles an hour towards sobriety. And so even in early sobriety, you're feeling not prioritized. And that can feel hurtful, that can lead to resentment, and that can lead a person to be critical. And so when, if you are the spouse of an alcoholic and your, you know, your drinker is trying to get sober and you're critical of them for going to so many AA meetings or spending so much time working on their recovery, um, you know, that's the criticisms continuing. You're still trying to change some somebody. Sounds like I'm blaming the spouses here, and I know I'm getting into very dangerous territory, but what I'm trying to get across is we've just got to accept each other for who we are if we want the relationship to thrive. And when you know, you, it, it hope- goes the other way, too. The, the, the other very obvious one that happens a lot is we the alcoholics say to our spouse who's been through this trauma capital t trauma has experienced all of this awful stuff at the hands of their alcoholic (laughs) now we're sober for a couple of weeks and we say you're not supporting me enough you're not helping me you're not telling me you're proud of me you're not 
this, that, and the other thing. There are, there are all these ways that you are not good enough for me. And so you're critical of me because I'm spending too much time on my recovery and I'm critical of you because you're not supportive enough of, of my recovery. So here we are. Criticism was an underlying cause of the addiction and the criticism continues. Mm-hmm. I cut you off a minute ago. I was just going to say, like, I know that in the beginning a lot of people are going that are trying to find sobriety, permanent sobriety, they often attend, you know, a lot of AA meetings. Right. And that's the structure is, like, AA wants you to go very, very often. Yes. Um, so that that is very hurtful for the spouse because, you know, they want to see you a little bit as a sober person um, because... They want to try to work on the relationship, and that's really hard. And I, for me, that's where I find sometimes a little bit of a complaint with AA because they're not thinking of the person as a whole person. So then they're getting that pressure, and they're, they know that they're not with their family right now, that they're at a meeting, and they know it's going to be in the long run for a good thing. But that just puts the person that's seeking sobriety in a really tough spot because their program wants them to be there a lot in the beginning, especially or if they're having a really rough time. And then they know that they've got this family that they need to attend to. So I think that adds a little bit of an undue pressure. And that's why I think that it's really easy to be critical if you're the spouse because you're feeling like, gosh, you prioritize. Yeah, you're still abandoning me. But it is for, hopefully, a shorter time time period than the alcoholism had yeah, run. And and I I would just encourage people to to look at that and say, as opposed, you know, I've got two choices. I can get on my spouse because they're always running off to an AA meeting, or I can say, look, this is part of his process. It's different than my process and I've got to just accept it if I want this relationship to thrive. Right. Because the the criticism and trying to change each other, that's what gets us into these snags to begin with and as the person who's trying to find sobriety they can understand my partner's feeling abandoned because i'm working on this and it's just for a short time so maybe have sympathy too and i know that's really hard to do but i think it if you're looking at it from both sides there is an acceptance and an understanding and at least having a conversation and acknowledging that this is what's happening instead of just holding it in and letting it build up we alcoholics in early sobriety, we also ha- tend to have short tempers. Our mood swings are pretty drastic, and we don't know how to manage our emotions because we're just learning, trying to learn that for the first time without uh, just soothing our emotions with alcohol. And so we tend to snap and say things that we probably shouldn't. And on the flip side of that one, the loved ones of alcoholics often get criticized for being cold and distant. Uh, You and I are big supporters of the idea that the spouses of alcoholics need to keep their walls up, need to keep the uh, tools that they've built and utilized to protect themselves from the chaos and trauma of alcoholism, need to keep that in place in early sobriety because relapses happen. That is a reality. So in our case, you were cold and distant in my early sobriety. That upset me and it we would have been much better served had I just said, yeah, she's cold and distant because I heard her for a long time. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. And, you know, the the flip side of that, like I said, as my mood swings are going off and I'm, you know, uh, having a temper and then sulking and a lot of the same behavior that 
I exhibited in active addiction for you just to say, oh, it's part of his process. It sucks. It's not fair. I don't like it, but it's part of his process. So another opportunity for rather than to be critical and blame each other to just be accepting and understanding and compromise. Well, and hopefully these are things like these are things that we learned because the wrong way because we didn't know. But if you're in early sobriety or, you know, your partner's thinking about it, hopefully this knowledge can be powerful and help both of you. Yeah. And understand that because there was a lot of unacceptance in the beginning of your, you know, seeking sobriety. I was critical of you because you were abandoning me. You were critical of me because why wasn't I just like running into your arms? Yeah. You know. Where was the support? Yeah. Yeah. I think part of the reason that we're critical of each other is that we just don't understand the process. Exactly. Very few people understand how this is going to go it's when not, it's successful. It's not. It's ugly when it's successful. It's not pretty. Mm-hmm. And, and having that understanding can help people be less critical and more accepting. Yeah. Well, and because it's not out there and not known. And yeah. you're not meeting each other's needs still. Speaking of not meeting each other's needs, another area where there is potential for continuing to be critical in sobriety and in recovery is that sex misalignment often almost always continues. It's not like you get sober and all of a sudden you want to do it on the exact same frequency with each other. There's still, there's still a huge, uh, misalignment. And one of the things that's hurtful if you are the person, and this is, you know, I don't want to make this a male female thing because sometimes the female has a higher sex drive than the man. It's not always the man has a higher sex drive, but if you're the person who wants it more often, um, it's, it's very, you feel like a, like a deviant, like a, like you're a possessed, you know, evil person when you're in that position. And so again, this is another area where there needs to be more compassion and understanding and less criticism and trying to change. Um, does, you know, because there's, there is nothing wrong with people with, different libidos that's just how humans work Mm -hmm. and uh it doesn't make me you know evil and it doesn't make you a prude um and i think i don't think you and i use those words necessarily but we definitely uh expressed our emotions in ways that made each other feel bad i made you feel bad and you made me feel bad and so you know this is another area where there needs to be uh, a lot of compassion and compromise. And I know I'm again getting into dangerous territory because I, I could certainly hear the lower libido spouse of an alcoholic thinking, oh, so, you, so you're just telling me I need to give my husband quickies to satisfy uh, him sexually. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying at all. Um, compromise doesn't mean you need to give in. Compromise results from really good communication. And I think that's what we should end on today, Sherry, is talking about communication. You know, the trauma that is experienced in an alcoholic relationship is a really, really, really big deal. Uh, We as a society downplay it. We treat it like, you know, it's a second-class citizen to, say, sexual assault or, um, you know, childhood abuse, 
those are very serious things. But I'm here to say the trauma of going through an alcoholic relationship is just as traumatic and just as serious. And so if you've lived through active addiction on either side of the fence, you've been through a lot. It's really, really hard. And if you want the relationship to thrive and survive, we just need to cut each other some slack. We need a ton of that compassion and compromise that I talked about. And a huge component of that is going to have to be a ton of communication. We, You and I, Sherry, have gotten to a point where we have established a really safe and judgment-free ability to communicate. But it wasn't always the case, especially since we had such a history of trying to change each other. And again, maybe me trying to change you more than you trying to change me. But when that's what you're used to, you come into uh, conversations expecting there to be conflict. Mm-hmm. I'm going to get criticized in this conversation. You I come in defensive and yeah. ready to win your side of the argument. Exactly. And if you're trying to de- deal with something like libido misalignment, holy shit, you better be judgment-free and safe or that conversation is going nowhere good. Mm-hmm. If it's going to be you don't give it enough and you want it too much, you're better off not opening your mouths. So creating that safe and judgment-free kind of atmosphere for communication is important. And then, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if I'm explaining it very well. But something shifted in me at some point when the things that I had spent all this time, (coughs) pardon me, trying to be, being critical of you, about you, and trying to change in you, it just shifted. And I just said, oh, this is what makes her unique. This is this is cool because she's different from me. And it turned in, in my head, into an asset instead of a liability. There wasn't one, like, you know, miracle moment. Nothing big happened. Like, you didn't save one of our kids' lives. And I went, oh, she's a better parent than me. I need to listen to everything she says. There wasn't some big thing. I think maybe it, I just got sick and tired of us not getting along and started to recognize the true value that you have to offer. And so now when you get upset, I don't think, you know, what's wrong with her? Why, you know, she's broken. Why? I think, okay, what's upsetting her? And that's a totally, it's subtle, but it's a totally different mindset to come into it with. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I, I'm looking for answers and the solution isn't you just need to do it my way. The solution is something's hurting her. We got to figure out what that is. Or she's got to figure out what that is. And maybe I can be a part of that. Um, but it's 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 no longer at all a case where I'm like, oh, that's just her upbringing. She's broken. She sucks. She needs to do it my way. One of the things I want to tack on to that, and I know we're trying to wrap up, but just when you said... We need to fix it, or she needs to figure out, and maybe I can be a part. Or it was, she needs to figure it out. I'll be there to support her. I'm not going to jump in and try to save the day. Like, yeah. that was a big shift. Yeah. When you could just let me be me and deal with it in my own way. Yeah. Yeah. That's when I feel like I started to really open up a little bit more, too. Yeah. So I think now when I see differences in our styles, when I see things that in the past I would have been critical about, the decision point for me is much different. It's either accept this and even embrace it, or we got to 
part company and move on. And I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing about your personality that is so abrasive to me that I would even consider moving on. But I think that's important for people to hear because if you think your solution is I'm going to change this person, that ain't going to fucking work. Mm-hmm. So if it's that bad, then you need to go find another person. But if it's not that bad, then just find a way to celebrate it. I love that there's clutter all over your Stop desk. Stop talking like that. I love it. It's a, I think it's cool. It's post-holiday mess still. I use, I'm still like in the middle of thank you when cards. When I use your jet desk, it's like... It's like parting of the seas. I like push all the crap to the side and I find a little, I find some wood under there and I'm like, oh, I found the desk. And I put my little keyboard down and I use that little spot. And, you know, sometimes like a magazine will get stuck to my elbow and I'm like, oh, I got to slide that over a little further. I don't care. I love it. And also, this is not just my desk. Our youngest, who is sloppy too, comes up and uses the desk. So that's why there's the Sharpie marker all over the desk too of leaking through from his his uh, crafting or comic making, I guess, is what he does. But it's great because it reminds me that I'm not the only one that lives here and I can celebrate <laughs> our differences. I don't know when that happened. I don't know why it happened. But it's way better than being critical. Yes, I've got shoes everywhere. Sorry. Because you're too cheap to buy a shoe rack (laughs) or let me buy a shoe rack for you. That sounds like a criticism of my money management, (laughs) Sherry. (laughs) You can go buy something on sale with all the money I saved on a shoe rack. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to soberevolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.